You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome back to The Natural Philosopher with Dr Mick Pope. This is part two of a three-part series looking at concepts of biblical justice. And we're driving towards a point where we can think about climate change and climate justice. And last time we got to the point, if you've listened to the episode, of examining the parable of the Good Samaritan. And one of the things I did was go back into the Old Testament and establish that there's a concept in Hebrew known as mishpat, which is often translated as justice and and very often, not exclusively, but very often, applies particularly to giving people their rights or their dues. Um, That's D-U-E-S and is often applied to the the widow and the fatherless and the the alien, etc. So it's for those down and out in society, and the whole idea is that being made in the image of God, restorative justice is elevating someone back to where they should be in the first place. That this is a concept is key in a Christian understanding of climate justice. So I got to the point where I read the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I'll leave you to read that from Luke chapter 10, but let's continue our discussion in this program about how this might apply to climate justice. So I think this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, has justice written all over it. And justice, of course, as I've said, is an overarching theme in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, but also in the New, and this is where I think Jesus takes it up here. So the law is summed up by love in the parable, and so justice is love made public, I believe. Now, the parable arose out of an argument about the law. So you have an expert in the Mosaic law, or the Torah, asking Jesus about what he must do to inherit eternal life. And putting this in the first century context, this is not uh, a debate amongst medieval Catholics about how you earn your way to heaven, quote-unquote, in some kind of platonic sense. And sometimes we come to these characters in the New Testament and don't read them perhaps as something more of the good guys than will give them credit for, although see the following, um, that his understanding is, is quite mixed. And whose isn't? So the whole idea of arguing about which is the greatest commandment uh, it's was a feature of rabbinic Judaism and certainly reflected in modern biblical scholarship as people debating about the, the finer points of exegesis and so on. Um, so he's asking about uh, eternal life or the age to come, Zoan, Aeonion. And Tom Wright thinks that uh, this is a better translation, that it's the life of the age to come rather than eternal life. And the reason being is that we seem to carry so often about an idea that eternal life means going to heaven when you die and that the earth itself is destroyed in some um, apocalyptic event. And you might be forgiven for thinking about that a lot of late in the age of COVID-19, but also the catastrophic fires happening again in the United States and the most recent bushfire season in Australia. 
But the teacher kind of gets it right, I think, in, insofar as he understands that it's all about love. Um, but then he kind of wanders off the way in a little bit. Um, just doesn't get the, the central point. Why? Because he wants to control whom one loves. So the key, the kicker of this, the message, the or the idea that Jesus approves from the teacher of Torah is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. In other words, love God with everything you have. And this is a, a really good answer, I think, to the likes of Sam Harris and the other new atheists who say that religious extremists are the only true religious individuals and that the moderates are copping out. And I think he's right, but it's just that in the case of biblical Christianity, he's wrong to suggest that it therefore means extremes in violence. It's meant to be in extremes in love insofar as God is the absolute object or subject rather of our love. But there's a close connection between love of God and love of neighbor and humans represent God to the rest of creation because we are the images of God. And that's what that's meant to mean. It's not uh, an opportunity for hubris, uh, as if we want to downplay the significance or importance of the rest of creation or think for a moment that the entire rest of creation on the natural world is purely for our benefit, but that precisely we're meant to mirror or image God to the creation. And that's rooted in, in a sense in an understanding, therefore, that if human beings indwell creation as divine images, then what does that say about the nature of creation itself as being a temple? And that's certainly an idea that's built with the tabernacle, the temple as the centre of Jerusalem, being the world in, in microcosm, if you will, and then finally drawn out in all its detail and all its glory in Revelation 21, where there's no temple because uh, God dwells with his people. And so the whole creation becomes that temple. So what that does, I think, uh, and we need to understand this, is that this whole secular sacred divide gets collapsed in terms of our vocations. You know, there are Christians who say that the only true Christian vocation is one of Christian ministry, by which they mean ordained or in some student ministry or whatnot. And whether or not it's articulated clearly, it's kind of tacitly assumed that somehow any other role that you might have is, is secondary to that, or at least it's there designed to earn money to support those in real ministry. But I think the fact that we're made in the image of God to dwell in the world and to reflect uh, God to that world is, is that something that collapses that whole dichotomy in the first place. And yeah, I would say that as an eco-theologian. So we're made in the image of God and we're to love God and therefore to love our neighbour. And that direct connection, I think, is made in Genesis chapter 9 in the prohibition of murder. And it's directly based on humans being made in that image of God. So behind the command to refrain from murder is the deeper command to love. Do the just thing, don't murder, because it is the loving thing to do. Love God, and because you love God, love your neighbor. Now, of course, the teacher of the law tries to circumvent the full implications of this by asking, who is my neighbor? And so you might uh, you know, it, that's captured in a sense in people who say charity begins at home. When there's calls for, uh, you know, there's appeals for overseas aid, there's been a natural disaster and people say, well, why don't we just look after the poor at home first? And of course that we should. Why is it a choice between the two? Charity begins at home, but it doesn't end there. And you know, 
Our neighbours are typically the people that we see each day, although modern life means you don't often run into or see your neighbour. But here's a quote of myself, pretentious I realise, from the 2013 uh, climate change rally in Melbourne organised by GetUp. That was quite an experience speaking in front of tens of thousands of people. In a world where I wear clothes made in Bangladesh, watch American movies on a Korean TV, and when I drive my Japanese car, I add gases that warm the whole planet, everyone is my neighbour. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus told the story about a man attacked by robbers to teach us that we are to love our neighbours when they are in need. And so when you've got one atmosphere and one water cycle and one globalised economy, everybody is your neighbour. So to think that this preaching the gospel is about making converts rather than as it's very clearly stated in Matthew 28, uh, 18, that we're to make disciples of all nations uh, means that we can't afford to ignore the the things that Jesus said about justice, say in the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, for example. And, and another point that's worth making before we move on is that Matthew 28, 18 says that all authority on, in heaven and on earth is given to Jesus, which is the fulfillment of the Lord's Prayer. Now, look, I know eschatology is not fulfilled. It's only partially so. So you can say that Jesus is in charge now and things don't always look that way. But nonetheless, this is what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And so this authority on heaven and on earth means it's not just about heavenly things, about the structure of the church or about the nature of evangelism, about the ordering of your private spiritual life. But what about beyond the human heart to political systems and financial systems, multinational corporations, courts, and our relationship with the non-human creation? All these things need putting to right. Israel, was God, as God's servant, was meant to be light to the nations. That's Isaiah 45, verse 6. Jesus, as the servant, shone light into the darkness. That's the start of John's gospel. And therefore, the church is to shine light into the corners of darkness. It means walking in dark places and getting our hands dirty in acts of justice. And it's always worth mentioning or thinking about, although there's no time to look at it in detail now, that the one Greek word, dikaiosune, uh, which is often translated as righteousness, can also mean justice. So here's an exercise for those of you who read the New Testament. Go through and whenever you read righteousness, replace it with the word justice. You won't be doing any violence to the original Greek, and it may do some interesting things to your understanding. So justice is part and parcel of discipleship making. And that means doing just things. And James, in James 2, verses 14 to 16, has a lot to say about that, doesn't he? Because he says that faith without works is dead. You can have the most brilliant theology. You can declare to your blue in the face that you're a Christian and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, etc., etc. But if you're unwilling to speak out on justice issues, if you're unwilling to act in the way in which you spend your money or your vote or whatever else for justice issues then perhaps you're not making quite the proclamation that you think that you are. So let's get back to the parable of the Good Samaritan with that context in mind. So we've got, we need to consider the fate of a nameless man in the parable who was stripped 
beaten and left half dead. So why did the priest and the Levite, coming from some holy duty in Jerusalem, ignore his plight? Well, firstly, he was stripped. And we know that in the ancient world, uh, certainly in ancient Jewish thought, not Greek thought or Greco-Roman thought, that nakedness was shameful. Think about the incident with Noah and his sons, or the fact that the man and the woman in the garden realized they were naked, and felt ashamed. So we have few scruples about that, but clearly that was off-putting for them, or so it would seem. And if you're struggling for a, to get your head around that, think about the last time, or maybe the next time you meet somebody who's homeless, and they're asking for a few dollars to find accommodation or actually get a meal, that maybe it's been a little while since they bathed, and how off-putting might you find that? So perhaps it's the same reaction. The second reason for inaction on the part of these religious figures is probably that he was beaten half to death. So he may have been covered in blood, that's likely, and he may have appeared as if he was a corpse. Well, the law made it pretty plain that a, touching a corpse made you ritually unclean. Numbers 14, 29, for example, or chapter 19, or Leviticus 22. And we know that in the first century that um, the religious figures, the, the Jews, the, the priests rather, in Jerusalem, were obsessed by cleanliness. I have a favourite documentary I, I churn out at Easter and Christmas, and it talks about an archaeological dig where they found houses with multiple baths, where you could put an entire bed in for having been made, made unclean. So they've just come back from their, their duty at the temple, and they're not willing to stop to help someone in need because it would have made them unclean. But uncleanliness was not a permanent condition for such a thing. You bathed and you got on with business. They didn't want to get their hands dirty. They didn't want to get involved. And to be perfectly honest with you, that reminds me of Christians who would say, well, I don't want to get involved in contaminated by liberal doctrine. I don't want to get involved in social justice or the so-called social gospel because it might somehow contaminate the pure message. And anyway, that's just not what I do. And that's all well and good, but then to turn that around and say, well, that's not what Christians should do at all, is a bit of a stretch. Um, Christians have different gifts. Whenever I speak about this, I'm not calling for everybody, although I know some people who might, to go chain themselves to a train or a tree or whatever else. People are definitely called to non-violent direct action on climate change and other issues. And I do hope to speak with people who've done exactly that in future programs. But the point is, I don't think we can afford to be the other way as well. Looking at the reaction of um, these religious figures, remember Jesus is teaching this parable against somebody who's trying to limit the way in which Jesus is saying to love your neighbor. So it's very plainly obvious that we can't afford not to love our neighbors as ourselves in ways which involve restoring them to their original state of, of, of being, the image of God, their original dignity, simply because it might be perceived as, quote-unquote, a liberal issue, be that theologically or politically. Uh, yeah, I mean that in the American sense. Of course, in Australia, we have the Liberal Party, which is the other end of the spectrum. So Christians need to get their hands dirty. And if we learn nothing else from the parable of the Good Samaritan, it should be that. We'll dig into that in more detail in the second half of the program.
Well, welcome back to the program. And we're continuing in our series on the parable of the Good Samaritan as a justice parable for a warming world. So how we love our neighbour. We finished by examining or contrasting, in a sense, the Good Samaritan with the religious figures, the Jewish religious figures, against whom this parable was taught. And one of the things that it's worth pointing out is that the one thing that these religious figures seem to lack that the Samaritan had was compassion for the man in his plight. And this word in the original Greek is the same word that's used in Matthew 9.36 when Jesus uh, saw the crowds following him distressed like sheep without a shepherd and he felt compassion for them and began to teach them. So you see, compassion is expressed in word and in deed. He could see people leaderless. Um, They were looking for respite from harsh Roman rule and uh, the things that went with that. Uh, And I'll talk about that in the next program. And of course, the deeper spiritual issues that underlie both their reaction and indeed that Roman rule. So I want to go on now and talk to you a little bit more about uh, how this all plays out. So here's here's an unimportant principle, I think, for for Christians thinking about engaging in in social justice, not just climate, but but other things. One of the things that the parable points out to us is that Jesus expects us to love our neighbours by crossing boundaries. Now, people blithely use the label Good Samaritan without realising the profound divide between Jew and Samaritan. The Samaritans were regarded as pariahs by the Jews like illegitimate half-siblings. After the ten northern tribes were carried away into captivity by the Assyrians in about 720 BC, people from other parts of the empire were settled there. You can read about that in 2 Kings 17. Uh, These people kept their own religious beliefs as well as worshipping the God of Israel. And the Samaritans had their own temple on Mount Gerizim and only accepted the first five books of the Hebrew Bible as sacred. And Jews had no dealings with Samaritan. You read about that in John chapter 4, which makes this parable all the more powerful. So in holding up a Samaritan as an example of neighbor love to a Jewish religious leader, Jesus was being very provocative, to say the least, right? Now more than that, he's calling us to break down all barriers in the pursuit of loving our neighbor. So why shouldn't Christians get involved in secular aid agencies or secular conservation agencies? Again, I touched upon this briefly in the last half of the program, is that people might trot out the whole idea of not being unequally yoked. And you find that in 2 Corinthians 6. That at best is an argument against intermarriage, and it's particularly centered around not falling back into the worship of idols, which is a real problem in Corinth, if you read both of those books. And then I want to say to people that If you've a passion for the gospel and you want to speak to people about the Christian faith and you're not prepared to work with them on important issues, well, you're in a bit of a bind, aren't you? And one book that I find compelling is Mike Frost and Alan Hirsch's The Shape of Things to Come, which talks about a missional shape of church, not just this attractional model where we sit on our backsides on Sundays in pews or more comfortable chairs and sing songs and have sermons and do all those sorts of things and expect those from outside the church to come into our buildings rather than saying, well, pretty well aware that God's making all things new. Let's get out there and get involved in it 
and share with those who share a concern for similar issues what we uniquely bring to the table. As I say in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a parable about restorative justice, it is that we love God and therefore we love our neighbor. And supremely, that love is modeled by the love of Jesus, who is ultimately, if you like, the Good Samaritan, the one who brings healing. So we can't afford to be above ourselves. I mean, Paul can say on one hand that no one is righteous, not a one in Romans 3.10, and yet also say that the law is written on the consciences of people when they do write Romans 2.14 and 15. So then, when we get involved in, in issues like climate change and poverty and so on, and say, for example, the sustainable development goals uh, that were developed by the UN, surely we can uphold and respect those things uh, as being valuable and an example of the common grace of God. Yet, of course, Christians will say that the, oh, the UN, and you hear a bit about the World Health Organization at the moment, don't you? Or, or certainly, um, being, walking in meteorological circles, I've heard this about um, the World Meteorological Organization as well, or the IPCC, uh, is that Christians get involved in some fanciful thinking about world government and the mark of the beast, based upon some pretty shoddy reading of the book of Revelation. I've written a whole book about this topic. It's so misguided, I think, and there's no room to fully unpack that here. But in working alongside others of good um, faith or of good intent, we're not trying to build heaven on earth, quote unquote, or a utopia. But if we believe as Christians that we are the beachhead of heaven on earth, that is, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, as Paul talks about in Romans 8.23, then surely we need to be about kingdom business and kingdom values and that's working for the common good in order to attract people to the gospel uh, and point to the world that's coming so the sustainable development goals are well worth upholding and i want to talk briefly now about a couple of intersections as i flick through uh, my book a climate of justice to find should always use bookmarks when you're doing this thing tell you some stories. Now, how to be a good neighbour. Han Island, the main island of the Carteret group off Papua New Guinea, is home to more than about 1,500 people. Now, Nicholas Hakatar, and you can find a video of him uh, online, is an elder on Han Island. He describes life there as a holiday island paradise. Uh, you spend time fishing, checking on banana crops or just sitting around and relaxing. It sounds really compelling and really nice and a real challenge to our models of growth and development <clears throat> and busyness. Uh, however, over the past few years, sea level rise is starting to erode their quality of life. In 2008, which is a few years ago now, um, Hart Island was completely inundated by seawater in a storm surge. And that left behind bodies of water all over the island, which were responsible for outbreaks of malaria. So in other words, uh, mosquitoes were able to breed there. And this was the first time that this had happened. So they had no natural immunity, as some people do in Africa, or ability to resist. Uh, and so that, together with malnutrition, kept children from attending school. Now, Christians have always been behind building schools and educating children, haven't they? And all about keeping people well. Um, so inundation events also damaged their banana crops and other food sources. 
So the, the islanders are reliant on boats bringing in supplies and these are unreliable. And so in 2007, the Carteret Islanders decided to initiate a migration program to Bougainville and land has been bought there by the Catholic Church, um, although progress has been slow over the years. And Han Islanders hope they can return home to visit and to fish, but of course sea level rise and ocean acidification and so on means that down the track that's not really going to happen. So imagine you have a, an ironclad uh, immigration asylum seeker policy that just doesn't let people in. What happens to all of these people who uh, their islands are disappearing beneath the waves? Tuvalu is another example. Um, and here you get it even more strongly that these people don't want to leave this place. We don't want to leave. It's our land, our God-given land. It's our culture and we can't leave. So what do you do for the dignity and the image of God in people whose very existence, their lifestyle, their home, their spiritual connection to land is going to be destroyed by sea level rise? Well, in the case of Tuvalu, they're looking at building artificial islands so they can live in the same location. But who's going to pay? And finally, um, even without climate change, but we're very much facing that, what about foreign aid? According to MICA Australia, Australian aid in 2015, now I know these are old figures, but the ones I've got, Australian aid vaccinated 2.3 million children, gave 2.9 million people access to clean water, built 9,000 classrooms, funded skilled birth attendants for 1 million births, provided support and service to 66,000 women who survived violence, supported more than 400,000 farmers with better technology and gave life-saving support to Syrian refugees. And they were fleeing conditions of political unrest, which were partially stirred by climate change, whole, uh, giving life-saving support to whole communities recovering from Typhoon Haiyan. And we know that a, a warmer climate uh, is an atmosphere with more moisture and with sea level rise, both those things make typhoons um, more deadly and gave aid to people recovering from the Nepalese earthquake. Aid can eliminate diseases like smallpox, saving 200 million lives, and insecticide-treated mosquito nets help reduce the incidence of malaria and associated diseases like dengue. And the range of diseases like malaria, as we've just heard, is spreading due to inundation events, but also warming up mountain ranges. So while people are valiantly fighting the incidence of malaria, which kills people with encephalitis and keeps kids from school and damages economies because people can't go to work because they're too sick with it, um, while you're battling that on one front, on the other hand, you've got um, climate change exacerbating and spreading it. So it's this battle. So education's important. So we educate kids, but if we don't give uh, foreign aid, then kids don't get educated. And what happens when there's natural disasters? They're less likely to go to school. What happens if they get malaria due to climate change? They're less likely to go to school. So you pump money into uh, helping people feed themselves, food banks, and so on and so forth. But climate change, we know now, is cutting the yield of major food crops. So we, we spend money on uh, aiding people to, to be able to, to feed themselves. And yet at the same time, we take away uh, 
if if climate change continues unabated without good climate change policy. So I guess I'm leaning towards at this point the deep interconnection, not just between restorative justice, whether or not it's aid after a quote-unquote natural disaster or a climate change-related disaster, or building facilities to help improve education, a lot of women, um, job opportunities, all those things that we consider essential uh, to a healthy functioning economy. And we, we certainly prize that very highly in the West, don't we? Um, but what about the things that we do that take those things away? And that's ultimately going to be the thrust of uh, my next program, where we look at the backstory uh, of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that's a bit on dangerous ground in a sense for some, because there's this obsession in in Western exegesis that there'd be one meaning and one meaning alone from a parable. And if you've read any history about the history of exegesis or the medieval church, you'll know that there was a time when you could extract all sorts of meaning from these things. But I think it's important when we ask ourselves the central question, and I'll leave you with this to think about over the week, that the one character that often is neglected in the parable of the Good Samaritan are the bandits, those who put the man in the the distress in the first place, those who took away his dignity, those who left him in a position where he needs to be the receiver of restorative justice. And it's important to note, and I'll leave you with this final thing, is that the word in the Greek, and I'll talk about this next time, is not simple robber. It's bandit. It's Robin Hood. Where did these people come from? Why was there a need in the first place for them to take up that vocation? Was it simply again, and this relates back to what I said last week, a case of they just chose the bad life, that it's, and all that's needed is justice, in the kind of legal sense, uh, as the International Justice Mission would say, what would happen if the road uh, from Jerusalem had been properly policed? Or is there something else going on? Not to excuse their turning to violence. In fact, Jesus preaches uh, non-violent direct action, non-violence. The cross is the ultimate example of that. But nonetheless, why did they feel the need to turn to violence? Why did they feel the need to beset this man in the first place? And maybe more powerfully than why did the priest and the Levite not want to get involved? Was it a matter of ritual purity alone or something else? So in other words, it's not enough. And I'll argue this again next week in a warming world to say, okay, we'll build seawalls or we'll allow people to immigrate or we'll provide more foreign aid uh, to get it up to respectable levels. What about the very system that's causing climate change in the first place? Thanks for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison, with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.